down that remote, set your phasers to stun, and pick up that paperback. You do have books in the 24th century. Welcome to episode 11 of Reading Trek, a Star Trek book club podcast and proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. My name is William Conlon, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Marty Ali. Marty, how are you today? I'm pretty good. Um, I, for anyone who follows me on Twitter, um, you probably know that I spent the last week in the hospital. Um, so my voice sounds a little scratchier than normal tonight. I apologize, but... Uh, we're going to push through because we've got a great book to talk about. Absolutely, and we are so happy to have you here. We've all just been thinking about you and keeping up with you online, and uh, we're just we're just so glad you're on the mend. Thank you. I am too. And we are also joined today by a special guest, uh, Thad Haight. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Now, Thad, why don't you tell us about your uh, Star Trek podcast? Well, uh, with my friend Stuart, I host a podcast uh, called Delta Flyer, which is a Star Trek Voyager rewatch podcast. We currently just finished season one of Voyager. That's awesome. Looking forward to hearing um, all sorts of great classic episodes of Voyager on there. And uh, you reached out to us online because you said this was your favorite of the four invasion books. So uh, what's your connection to the book we're going to be covering this week? Well, uh... I have a very strong memory of this book in particular. Uh, I read it years ago when I was a kid. Uh, and this was the first of the invasion books that I read. My sister, who's about seven years older than I am, uh, was big into Star Trek and had a whole bunch of Star Trek books. And she lent me this one and I read it and got hooked. And then I went back and read the other three. And this one in particular, I've, I reread again about five or six years ago and just still really love it. I think it's, I don't know if it's the best Deep Space Nine novel, but it's one of the best Deep Space Nine novels in my opinion. Nice, nice. Well, let's get into it. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, we are a book club podcast working our way through the Star Trek expanded universe one novel at a time, discussing the characters, plot, writing, and piecing it into the larger Trek universe as we pull out the meaning and messages of the text. Although we do encourage you to read along with us, the show was designed to give all Trek fans a way to journey through the EU together, even if you haven't read the books. So today's novel is Star Trek Invasion Time Enemy by L.A. Graff. And uh, before we dive into this week's novel, we want to take a moment to talk about our voicemail contest. Reading Trek is holding a contest, and you can enter to win a brand new hardbound copy of the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard by David A. Goodman. To enter, all you have to do is call our voicemail at 609-512-5527 and leave us up to a two-minute voicemail message with your thoughts on the show or something we've been reading. And uh, we're going to be covering the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard in a later episode, so you can follow along. You can comment on that as well. Now, uh, with that, let's get into this week's book. Marty, when and where does this novel take place? The question isn't where we are. It's when we are. This novel takes place in DS9, end of Season 3, between the Adversary and the Way of the Warrior. Uh, So just before we get uh, Worf on Deep Space Nine. That's correct. It takes place right around the time that Generations has taken place. Hmm. All right, well, let's get into the summary. So... Black alert. Black alert. 
Last time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Ben Sisko is on Starbase One along with Jadzia Dax and Julian Bashir on a Priority One mission from Admiral Heyman. They're looking through classified records from a deadly space battle when they realize that the ship in question is the Defiant, and the data is over 5,000 years old. Sometime soon, the Defiant is going to get thrown back in time, and the crew will all die, except for one. The symbiote Dax, who's being held in a stasis chamber in the thought-out ship that was recovered from inside a comet. Jetzia Dax and Bashir find a way for Jetzia to communicate with the symbiote Dax, who warns them about doing about doing the thing, and tells them to talk to the one who's been eaten. Okay. They also tech the tech and figure out that the Defiant will be destroyed the very next time it's launched. They head back to DS9 on a Vulcan science ship to try and avoid disaster. Meanwhile, on Deep Space Nine, Major Kira is having a bad day. She hasn't had a moment's peace since the commander left, what with Cork trying to get a gambling tournament started a bunch of store robberies on the promenade, and Rom trying to hustle some engineering work on the side. Piecing it all together, Kira discovers that a Bajoran militia is building a bomb to destroy the station. She and Odo chase after the culprits in the Rio Grande, and they discover ships that have been sliced open and gutted. Kira wants to get to the bottom of this and orders the Defiant prepped for launch, but that's not going to happen. Captain Sisko is back and has ordered the Defiant off-limits. He has his own investigation to deal with, something to do with the wormhole acting all wacky. Julian has Symbiot Dax brought aboard the station while the Vulcan science ship disobeys orders and heads to the spazzing wormhole. Once the wormhole calmed down, Sisko takes the Defiant out with a different crew into the wormhole to discover that the Vulcan science ship has been sliced open just like the other ships. As the team is investigating, two Jem'Hadar ships close in. The Defiant cloaks and watches as the Jem'Hadar destroy the Vulcan ship. They follow the Jem'Hadar back to their station that has been taken over by spacefaring bugs called Viroids, who project a transperiodic element that can melt through the hulls of ships. The Jem'Hadar start to tow the station to the wormhole, but the crew knows that it will explode once it gets through. They come up with the plan to self-destruct the station with the help of Symbiote Dax, who was brought over by Odo in an environmental suit. He lets the team know that the situation is just as bad on DS9, with the bugs attacking the station and trying to break the hull. Symbiote Dax is taken over to the station to be placed in the core to initiate the self-destruct. The connection with Jadzia allows her to communicate with the symbiote. The communication allows Dax to initiate the self-destruct, while Kira used an old-fashioned fusion bomb on the outer edge of the station to eliminate the Viroids. The end. Or is it? Dun-dun-dun. Great summary, Will. Great summary. Good job. Thank you. Much applause. All right. So uh, let's get right into the discussion on this. Um, Thad, since you're our guest, uh, I'd love to have you uh, start this off. What are your first impressions of this novel? Well, I love how it starts out. I love the mystery of finding the 5,000-year-old Defiant. I think that's really cool. Time travel. I like how the... I like how they set it up with first we don't know what's going on either as much as 
Cisco and the rest don't, and then Cisco gradually realizes that he's reading his own logs, and that's when they find out that it's actually them from the future and the past, and wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Time travel. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was actually really cool. I, I I love the time travel episodes. I think they're the most interesting, and uh, you can get a lot of great action out of them. What I thought was interesting about this one was that it was a time travel episode, but it was also more of a slow burn, which I, I thought mm-hmm. was one of the um, it's one of the great qualities of Deep Space Nine. It didn't have to be all action. Yes, I would agree. Marty, what were your thoughts? Um, I like. Like that, I, I I like the way it started. Um, the time travel element was intriguing. It's um, I love the first little bit of this this Bajoran militia on top of everything else that they're dealing with. Um, <clears throat> I, however, didn't like that it was such a slow burn because I kept waiting for more information on what's happening, and we didn't really get anything until almost like chapter fifteen. But um, I thought the story was pretty solid. Um, I liked that they didn't really use the same Fury villain that has been in the last two books. They kind of switched it up on us a little bit and gave us something different. Yeah, I was shocked at how um, uh, disassociated it was from the Furies for a considerable portion. I think there's only one mention of the Furies in the first seven chapters, and then uh, it starts to pick up after that. But, you know, it didn't feel like a continuation of the two previous novels to begin with. It just kind of felt like its own DS9 story. Yeah, to me, it kind of felt like it was its own contained story that got turned into an invasion story. Yeah, I love the concept, though. I think there was a lot there to work with, and um, I loved the scene right at the beginning with um, uh, Kira in the environmental suit dealing with Quark. Uh, you could just see that playing mm-hmm. out like any other episode with Armin being so bloody annoying. He was so great in that role. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about the characters Um how did everyone feel these characters were portrayed in the book versus what we saw on screen? I thought it was they did a pretty good job with that. Uh, Kira especially felt very much like yeah. Kira from the show. Yes. Kira was I, awesome in this book. I agree 100%. I, I thought the biggest flaw in the last book in this series was that I did not feel like we were listening to Picard and Riker and all these characters. It just, it didn't seem like them. Whereas this one from the start, Dax, Bashir, Cisco, Kira, they all, I heard their voices. I saw the performances. Yeah. Which is especially impressive when you realize that the authors, because L.A. Graf is a pseudonym for two people whose names I'm forgetting off the top of my head, uh, wrote a whole bunch of other Star Trek novels, but this is the only DS9 novel they wrote. Interesting. Okay, that's something I did not know. I didn't do that research, so I'm, I'm very curious to hear that. Yeah, uh, Marty, how about you? What did you think of the characters and the way they were portrayed? I thought they were portrayed pretty true to their on-screen counterparts. Um, I I think my favorite was Major Kira, which is surprising because normally in the show she kind of gets on my nerves because she's so abrasive all the time. But, <laughs> but I didn't nice. like her in this book. We got a little bit more into her psyche in here. There's one moment near the beginning. Light swirled against the cold backdrop, a spiral blossom of energy and quantum probability, far too lovely to deserve its inelegant human name, wormhole. If 
From the moment she'd first seen the gateway twist into being, Kira accepted that this was something more wonderful and significant than merely what the Federation's mathematics justified. The science could touch the tip of the iceberg didn't bother her. Understanding the parts of a thing granted you no special insight into its nature, just as a meticulous description of all the biological symptoms making up of a drawer and gave you no true idea the person living inside the shell. Four years of watching spaceships come and go through the wormhole's flaming mouth had done nothing to dim her convictions. The phenomenon's very existence provided that there was more to life than simply what met the eye. Nice. That's and a great quote. I don't quote. think we would have ever gotten something that deep out of her in the show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And by the way, just as a note on what we were talking about a minute ago, I just looked it up on uh, Memory Beta, and L.A. Graph is the pen name of a writing team of Karen Rose, Circoni, Julia Eckler, and Melissa Crandall uh, for some of the books, but mainly the other two. And they wrote a, a, about a dozen Trek novels between 1992 and 2002. So that's that's an interesting thing to to see on there. I always like to bring a little humor into this, and we've kind of got an ongoing thing here. So I have to uh, mention we have several references of transparent aluminum in this book. Transparent aluminum? Uh, it's kind <laughs> of an ongoing Trek novel trope that we always like to comment on. Transparent and right aluminum? Right about there, we'll play the clip of the astonished scientist in 1985. Transparent aluminum? How do you know he didn't invent the thing? <laughs> uh, um... And the I other counted of, three, at least. Yeah, I think so. There's definitely one right at the beginning, and then the others later on. The other moment of comedy that I really enjoyed was um, Morn filed a sexual harassment charge against six of Quark's gambling players. I, I just... Poor Morn. What what the heck happened to Morn? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, maybe he regurgitated too much latinum up. Ooh, maybe. Uh, so let's talk about um, the connection to the Furies. Guys, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was good because we had these two novels about the Furies, and we kept hearing about how they had been driven out of our space millennia ago, but we never knew what happened or who had driven them out and what happened to them. So it was. I thought it was really good in this one that we basically, that's what this is novel was about it was telling us about the species that defeated the furies i agree with you however given that this novel had kind of a time travel trope but not really i i was kind of hoping that we would go back in time time travel and discover like the history of the race like they would be like the silent observers kind of trying to report from afar but that never happened we never got our dinosaurs (laughs) Now it made it made good sense for them to add a time travel element in here because we have this four part series that covers the four series, um, the four television series, and uh, you know I think it, it would be easy to get these all jumbled together because you have the TOS novel and then you have TNG, DS9, and Voyager, which are all set in a time frame of less than a decade, uh, whereas the first book is. 80 years earlier. So it's kind of great that they put a time travel aspect in it to break up the three novels. Otherwise we would have had, you know, no fury action from the time of Kirk to Picard and then a lot of fury action. So by adding the time travel element, I thought that was good. 
Yes, and Voyager obviously has its own thing because even though there's theories in Vo- Voyager, the Delta Quadrant is nowhere near the Alpha Quadrant, so that makes mm-hmm. things different too. Exactly. Yeah, they did a they did a good job of at least spacing these out, considering they had a kind of lopsided time gap in the four novels. I have time travel questions. It's time travel. Starfleet Command thinks that five thousand years of being embedded in our time flow gave the old Defiant and her crew so much temporal inertia that even the elimination of their original time shift couldn't destroy them. I believe the technical term is timeline orphan. Hmm. But that makes absolutely no sense to me. In like every it doesn't time travel. really, no. Time travel. Since my first day on the job as a Starfleet captain, I swore I'd never let myself get caught in one of these godforsaken paradoxes. The future is the past, the past is the future. It all gives me a headache. It was just kind of thrown in there so they could get away with, um, you know, changing the timeline up, but still having access to the Dax symbiote. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting move to have um, to have Dax have the symbiote and have, you know, Jadzia as she was. And there's a line that I really liked um on page 20 where it says um the advantage of having several lifetimes of experience drawn jetsia dax often thought what was that there wasn't much left in the universe that could surprise you the disadvantage was that you no longer remembered how to cope with surprise so imagine you have you know 800 years worth of memories and then suddenly you meet a 5000 year old version of yourself i mean i hope i still look good after 5000 years work. yeah the face of Bo. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's good. I like that reference. Mm. We just shot over the heads of so many non-Who fans. True. Well, if they haven't watched Who yet, they're missing out, and they should go watch Who. Exactly. I mean, I already made a Doctor Who reference this episode, so yeah, I mean, yes, at this point, <laughs> if you haven't watched Doctor Who, what are you doing? Seriously. Okay, and then... Um, I'm not even going to read it, but I have highlighted, I have this very long techie segment from chapter 5, page 70, where they talk about Perdone's law of imaginary energy usage. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of technobabble in this episode. Oh my gosh, it's so in this dense book. with technobabble. Yeah. I couldn't make it through some parts of it because it was so dense. Mm. They did love oh to God. use isobromine a lot, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But character-wise, you know who I'm really happy we had in here because she's one of my favorite minor characters on DS9? We had An- Admiral Necheyev. Yes. The badass admiral of Starfleet. Yep. The one who put Picard in his place. Mm-hmm. So, and then he um, had to get her dessert to make up for it next time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's great. And, and I could see um, uh, Natalia doing a great job with this the only thing that i don't like about trek novels in general is that they never got made for the screen because so many of these i think would have a good visual aspect to them very much so i think a lot of the things they do in the novels they they couldn't do on screen though because of how expensive those kind of effects would be Oh, exactly. In our last Invasion novel, we had Riker doing uh, jet um, jet uh, uh, exercises on the holodeck, which I remember loving as a child when I first read this. I think I was like 12 or 13, and th- that was so cool to me. Chad, is uh, there anything that you want to talk about? Um, there were a couple things. 
I liked uh, one of the things in the be- towards the beginning when um, Cisco was looking at uh, his his corpse in stasis. I liked where they talked about him, how he was literally staring death in the face. I liked that. Mm, yeah. And the, um, the detail of like when he sees the, you know, one of his pips is shinier than the others. So he realizes how close he is in time to it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, that's like kind of polishes it a little bit. Yeah. That's, that's, yes. like, that's like twilight zone level of foreshadowing. And I, I very much liked how uh, they immediately show Bashir as being staunch and unyielding in his medical ethics and not going to do anything that would harm any of his patients. Mm-hmm. I also like the little quip there about him being so meticulous that when he did um, like one small aspect, like two numbers, I think, in the stasis chamber, he had um, inverted. And uh, he thought about how his other counterpart probably kicked himself for 70 years about that. I mean, that would drive me nuts, too, so I can totally get behind that. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a similar moment later on where he remembers where um, some he's getting attacked by the bugs, and he remembers where he left something that could help him. And he remembered yes. it because he thought to put it there so he'd remember it. Mm. And he was just I, like, good old anal retentive Bashir. Yes. <laughs> I, I know my DS9, I just don't know the exact order of them. Uh, at this point in s- end of Season 3, have we learned that he's an Augment yet? No. No, that's okay. going to be a couple years later. Okay, that's interesting. So I wonder if, I mean, this was written in 1996, so I guess that hadn't even been brought up yet, so that's interesting. No, but even from the beginning, Bashir was shown to be a, an extremely intelligent person. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Out here where heroes are made. <laughs> yes, exactly. And here, end of season three, he's sort of like transitioning away from the Bashir that like everyone hates in the beginning of the show to the guy that most people yeah. like at the end of the show. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you can notice that because there's a couple points where Kira is like, yeah, uh, is definitely very frustrated with him. Yeah, I think the one thing that they definitely got on this book was the characters, the, the main characters, uh, whereas I, I really felt the TNG one was lacking um, the just the voices, if you will, of Riker and Picard and some of the other TNG people. There were a few characters, though, that, that didn't get any representation because they just didn't know what to do with them. Um, mm-hmm. Cork had maybe two moments in the whole book. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. Jake Sisko was just gone. He's on Bajor for summer vacation or something. I don't know. Well, Jake Sisko is in less than half the episodes of the show, so that's okay. Yeah, but his name's still in the credits, so he's technically a main character. You know. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I know, but like, it, it's not. It's it's true to form for a novel to completely ignore Jake Sisko. <laughs> I didn't get as much of the um, Bashir O'Brien relationship that that I think was a a hallmark of DS9. How about you guys? No, not much of it. In fact, O'Brien in general was not uh, used very much in this episode. I mean, he was, he, he obviously was he was bland, there, wasn't he? He was a conduit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's I definitely... didn't get any indication that Bashir and O'Brien were friends other than the fact that O'Brien's just like, well, I'll watch this MBO for you so you can go do this other thing. This is yeah. definitely a Dax novel um for sure i think yeah i think dax and Bash- dax bashir and kira have yeah. the most 
exposition, and obviously some for Cisco, but Dax Bashir and Kira are definitely the strongest characters in this definitely. book. There's a really the great moments... Bashir moment in chapter 18, um, if you don't mind me reading it. Please. Bashir wasn't sure how much of his vocalizing the symbiote was aware of, but his ancient medical records at least indicated that he'd spent a lot of time the last 5,000 years talking to it. Today, taught Dax how to make the Stella, was his favorite of the old entries. Perhaps it was because there was no way he could have kept silent for nearly a hundred years, or perhaps it was because even a hundred years with the displaced symbiote never erased his gut-deep certainty that it somehow knew and cared when it was being interacted with. Even when that interaction was only a heart-sick human who could never offer it nothing more than one-sided conversation. Whatever the reason... The precedent had clearly been set long ago, so he still talked to it now whenever they were alone. Hmm. Made me go, aww. Yeah. Yeah. The other one I wanted to mention that didn't get a lot in here was Garrick. He wasn't even in this one. Where's Garrick? There's one mention of Garrick, I believe, when um, uh, uh, Cisco guesses that Julian is emulating Garrick. So I just don't, I, I don't know why he got left out of it. He would have had a great place in here, probably. Well, Garrick was own was I want to say Garrick was in less than it was a it's a much smaller number of episodes than you think. Oh, absolutely, but such a fan favorite and I think one of the glue one of the binding glues of the series. But I think maybe at the time that this book was written, he wasn't a fan favorite yet. That's true. We didn't have he really was kind the of portrayed as like a bad guy. They didn't want to overload it with bad Yeah, guys. I think he'd only been in 3 or 4 episodes at this point. That's that's important. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, granted, some of them were really good, like the wire and the uh, the two partner in Pur- Purgatory's Shadow and the die is cast. But mm. he he definitely has a more important role later in the show. You know, this is really important to talk about the context in which a uh, Trek novel is written. Yep. Uh, you guys bring up a great point of that. This novel was written in 1996, so we were only three, four years into DS9. So it's actually contemporary to the time, whereas, you know, so many Trek novels are written years later and set at a specific time in the series that we all know. Right, correct. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So, Thad, do you have any uh, favorite quotes you'd like to read? I liked um, when... Kira was briefly annoyed with Eddington for not seeing the trap that he led his security troops into. And then she's like, and then she thinks about the history that the Bajorans are used to that sort of thing because of their guerrilla warfare against the Cardassians. And then she says, Starfleet didn't share that history and it was probably unfairly racist to be angry with them for that fact. Isn't that something? I, I, I've highlighted that as well because you have some, you know, Bajoran on human racism, which is a funny perspective to look at. On the on the lighter side, uh, when when Dak when they're on the bridge of the Defiant and Cisco asks Dax to sit down, she thinks it's because he's afraid that because she keeps having the visions of the other Dax. Or sorry, he asked Jadzia. I need to be specific in this book. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's Jadzia Dax and then there's Symbiote Dax. Yes. Uh, and anyway, he asks Jadzia to sit down, and she thinks it's because he's worried about her because she keeps having the visions and sort of blacking out. And she says, "I'm fine. I'm not going to collapse." And he's like, "I don't care what you've become. I can't see see you. Th- I can't see through you to the view screen." I love that <laughs> moment. That was such a fun moment. And I and can totally could... see Avery Brooks saying that. Exactly. Oh, he's so good at delivering those one-liners. 
Absolutely. I don't care what you are. I can't see through you to the view screen. I had one more that I really liked was uh, towards the end when they're talking to uh, the brain of Tukring, the Vulcan that had been absorbed by the aliens. Mm-hmm. And she says, an inability to control all aspects of a problem is no excuse for neglecting the aspects you can control. Nice. That's a There's your quote. logic. <laughs> um, I had one quote that I liked. I mean, it's not nothing uh, big, but again, I'm a huge fan of Admiral Nicheyev. I think she's a great, like, you know, subtle character across TNG and DS9. So there's one where she's, um, this is in chapter six, where uh, they're talking about time mechanics and everything. And she just says, um, Nicheyev shrugged, although her razor blade face lost none of its intensity. Then whoever destroyed the Defiant has been dead for as long as the pharaohs have. And they obviously didn't disturb Earth's history since we're still here. Why don't we just dry dock the Defiant back on Deep Space Nine until it disappears from Star? base one then we'll know we averted that timeline she's like she's just so like down to uh you know down to the wire this is what we should do and damn you all if you have different opinions and i like how cisco thinks huh for once i agree with her yeah exactly (laughs) i have one more little cue moment oh please when um cisco gets back i think it's when cisco just gets back on the station the most annoying thing about Bajor's fledging terrorists, Cisco decided, was their ability to make trouble at ex- exactly the times when you wanted to pay them the least attention. Yeah, but it turned out to be pretty convenient that they were building that bomb. Yes, yeah. it did. Thank you, Bajoran came, terrorists. Came pretty handy. You had one and job. Was, and there was one more quote that I wanted to... It, it gets some insight into both Cisco and Eddington, of all people. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when they're on the Defiant and Cisco asks Eddington for a sensor reading and he gives it and then he just grunts his acknowledgement. And then the line here is, anyone who'd served under Benjamin Cisco for more than a single voyage knew that he didn't waste time handing out compliments, but Eddington never stopped trying for them. Mm-hmm. And and that kind of begs the question as to whether or not the authors knew about Eddington's future, uh, because we know a lot more than audiences knew when they were reading this book. Well, supposedly the showrunners didn't know about Eddington's future yet at this point. I just always have doubts about that because there's so much stuff that can be foreshadowing, even in the very beginning. Yeah, Absolutely. I think just Odo's general distrust of him. Mm-hmm. And and I, I can go ahead and come clean to audiences. I think I've said it before. I am very new to Deep Space Nine in general. I had seen episodes here and there growing up, but I did my first complete viewing of Deep Space Nine just last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just for some reason, it wasn't on my radar. I don't think it played on my local network, so I could only catch late-night reruns. So I just did a Netflix um, straight through last year after STLV. So I've kind of got DS9 fresh, fresher in my mind than other series. Well, the, you can't tell me that without me asking. What did you think of it? Oh, God, I loved it. I mean, okay. I I never disliked it. It was just kind of this weird blind spot in my Trek universe. And, um, you know, I had an even grander appreciation after going through it. Obviously, it's got its ups and downs. There are certain episodes sure. that, you know... Like, we'll, like every series. We'll not talk about mm-hmm. Molly O'Brien's uh, uh, gameplay. Oh, God. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's it's incredible, and I'm really looking forward to. Um, you know, it's not going to be a huge presence at STLV this year, but I'm sure there will be some DS925 celebration. We've got the Far Beyond the Stars panel and some other events coming up. And Cole Meany's going to be there. Yes, you know. Okay, let's have this discussion. I have heard now. I've always called him Cole Meany my entire life, but I'm Irish, and I know there's uh, some questions. I have heard that it's actually pronounced column. I've heard both ways, and I'm not sure, honestly. It's, in my head, I, I see it, and I, it looks like Colm to me. But yes, I have also heard it pronounced column. I've also heard it pronounced calm. So I'm honestly not sure. After having to uh, interview Saoirse Ronan several times, and if you know how her, her name is spelled, all bets are off when it comes to Irish people. that's true i know from experience if you've listened to previous episodes yeah so if you know uh the exact pronunciation of mr meanie's name please uh comment on our twitter and uh let us know we'll give you a shout out especially if you are mr meanie yes yeah (laughs) because what could you possibly do be doing right now other than listening to star trek podcasts it's not like you're a very busy actor nah not at all no, I think he's one of the most busy of the DS9 actors. Oh, yeah. He's, he is he definitely kept in is. it. Hmm. Yeah, he and uh, Alexander Stadeg are both always showing up in things. Yes, absolutely. I always remember the time he showed up in Stargate Atlantis, and I was like, ah. Oh, yes, that was awesome. I always think of uh, Con Air with his car getting destroyed in the opening. Well, I, and I think he was also he was also excellent in Hell on Wheels uh, with... Um, Everybody is, everybody is talking about Hell on Wheels, and I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm going to have to get to it before uh, Discovery comes back with uh, Mr. Anson Mount. It's on Netflix. Mm. Well, God, there aren't enough hours in the day. Marty's trying yeah. to get me on Stargate SG-1 now. So. <laughs> oh, I would, uh, I would agree with Marty on that one, because that's actually what my other podcast yes. is about. So. <laughs> oh, oh boy. We're, we're opening the wormhole here. Quite literally. <laughs> All right. Intended. Well, <laughs> why don't we uh, Why don't we move on to our final thoughts for uh, Times Enemy? Um, again, Thad is our guest. I'd love to have you go first. All right. Well, I mean, I covered most of it, but I just think it was, in general, just a really well done book. I like that it was a slow burn. I I appreciate that because it doesn't have to be. Action, action, action. I like sometimes when things build. And you don't always get that as much on TV, but in a book you can afford to do that. Uh, I really like the backstory that it gives us. It tells us about the viroids, the aliens that defeated the Furies. And I just just love this book from start to finish. Nice. Marty, how about you? Oh, well, we before we move on to, to me, did you pull out any um, messages or meanings in the book? Uh, not like specific, but I, I unfortunately was not thinking about channeling Ken Ray when I was reading this book, <laughs> so I didn't, uh, I didn't really specifically look out for that. That's okay. I wasn't really looking out for it either because I, I kind of read it in a hurry, which may have um, affected my opinion of the novel a little bit. Um, I thought it was very dense to the point where reading it almost became a little cumbersome. Um, I didn't mind that it was a slow burn. I didn't mind that it took a while to get to where we were getting, but um, because I didn't have a lot of time to read the novel, and it was so very dense that I had trouble getting through it. But 
overall, it was a great story. I like the story a lot. I like the characters. I like the way they treated the characters. So overall, pretty good. How about you? Nice. Yeah, well, again, like I said, uh, for me, this one was all about the characters. I felt like the authors really were able to um, bring the DS9 cast to life, the ones that they used. Um, so, uh, so if you can get that voice going in my head, then I think you've got the first mm-hmm. important step to a great yep. novel. And it was kind of agree. yeah, and it was kind of a breath of fresh air after the last one because, uh, again, I like this as a series, but the TNG one I think is the low point of uh, of this um, quadrilogy. Yes. All right, so with that, uh, let's talk about our next episode, which is going to be the final book. Marty, would you like to take that away? Sure. Our next our next episode is going to be all about Star Trek Invasion, The Final Fury, which is part four of the Invasion series. Wow, is that a book? For ages, they have sought to claim our world. Now at last, we take the battle to them. Far from the Federation's desperate war against the invading Furies, the crew of the USS Voyager encounter something they've never expected to hear again, a Starfleet distress call. The signal leads them to the vast assemblage of non-humanoid races engaged in a monumental project of incredible magnitude. Here is the source of a terrible invasion threatening the entire Alpha Quadrant and, for the Starship Voyager, a possible route home. But soon there may not be any home to return to. The epic conclusion to the greatest crossover saga of all time. That's the book. I know it's a book. The book. Ooh, I see some foreshadowing. I think we're going to have an appearance from Sam Redbay. I think so. I told you he'd be mm-hmm. back. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's I'm actually the only to... thing I remember about that book. <laughs> Is the return of Sam Redbay? Yes. Because that's what I'm <laughs> most looking forward to, so... Uh, yeah, and, there, and there's no way you had Riker and Picard looking out the window somberly that he wasn't coming back somehow. Um, so Tell me let's more t- about him. <laughs> Make it so. So uh, let's talk about where uh, everyone can be reached to continue the discussion. Thad, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably where I'm most active. I'm at Tyrannicus. That's T-Y-R-A-N-I-C-U-S. Uh, I, I do also hang out on Facebook in the unofficial Star Trek Las Vegas fan group. Great place. Marty, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Time Travel Marty. You can also find me in the unofficial Star Trek Las Vegas convention group on Facebook as well. Will, how about you? Well, same thing. You can find me on Twitter at William G. Conlon and in the unofficial Star Trek Las Vegas Facebook group. Really, I mean, if you've you've been listening to us for 11 episodes and you haven't checked that group out, what are you waiting for? It is run by our our wonderful Tricorder Transmission heads, uh, Jeff and Heather, and our STLV friend, Jesse. It's just a really great resource for Trek fans. Even if you don't go to the Vegas conventions, get yourself on there, make some friends, and it might entice you to go in the future year. Yeah, also, you should be going to the Vegas convention. Seriously, what are you waiting for? Come on, people. 
uh, again, before we go, I'd like to talk about our uh, contest where you can enter win a brand new hardbound copy of the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard by David A. Goodman. We're going to be covering that book in a future episode. To enter, all you have to do is call our voicemail at 609-512-5527. That is 609-512-LLAP. Uh, leave us up to a two-minute voicemail message with your thoughts on this show or something else we've been reading or Star Trek in general or the amount of Doctor Who references that we put into this episode. Just just talk to us. You'll be entered, and we'd love to... Or the amount of times I ask Will to watch SG-1. Exactly. One of these days. One of these days. Uh, you can also leave us a review on our iTunes page um, for us or any of the Tricorder Transmission shows. We're really proud of this podcast network we've put together. So please give us your feedback on there. Um, Outside of that, um, you can also reach out to us by sending us a tweet at Reading Trek or by email, readingtrekpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, as always, a list of our upcoming selections can be found on our webpage, readingtrek.thetricordertransmissions.com. And with that, Captain Picard wants us to let him read in peace. I will leave you now to your book. That is all I ask. <laughs>